This is the Memoir 44 podcast. It's for fans of the Days of Wonder game called Memoir 44. This podcast home on the web is at memoir44podcast.blogspot.com. Get in touch by sending an email to memoir44podcast at gmail.com. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Memoir 44 podcast. Today we'll be taking a look at the fifth scenario in the base game, Omaha Beach. Hang on, I've just been told that we have a report coming in from Robin Duff. Just five minutes before HR, H minus five, and looking straight in towards the coastline of France. Our assault craft are now out of sight, lost in the uh, lowering cloud there by the beaches. Our LCTs are in there, and within a few moments, the first tanks that lead the assault will be on the beaches and opening up with their guns. Let's take a look at the history relating to the assault on Omaha Beach. The beach was located on the northern coast of France, facing the English Channel, and was five miles long, from, coming from the sea, east of saint Hurain de pertez to west of vivelle sur mer on the right bank of the Douvres River estuary. Landings here were necessary in order to link up the British landings to the east with the American landings further to the west at Utah Beach, thus providing a continuous lodgment on the Normandy coast of the Bay of the Seine. Taking Omaha, was to be the responsibility of the United States Army troops, with sea transport provided by the U.S. Navy and elements of the Royal Navy. The untested 29th Infantry Division, joined by eight companies of U.S. Army Rangers, redirected from Point de Hoc, were to assault the western half of the beach. The battle-hardened 1st Infantry Division was given the eastern half. Very little went as planned during the landing. Difficulties in navigation caused the majority of landing craft to miss their targets. Ten landing craft were lost before they even reached the beach, swamped by the rough seas. Several other craft stayed afloat only because of their passengers quickly bailing the water out with their helmets. Then the defences were unexpectedly strong and inflicted heavy casualties on the landing troops. As the boats approached within a few hundred yards of the shore, they came under increasingly heavy fire from automatic weapons and artillery. The force discovered only then the ineffectiveness of the pre-landing bombardment from the air. Delayed by the weather and attempting to avoid the landing craft as they ran in, the bombers had laid their ordnance too far inland, having no real effect on the coastal defences. As correspondent Carter Barber put it from his vantage point in a Coast Guard cutter, We slowed to a snail's pace, and around 4.45am the anchors rattled down into the water and I could hear some of the curses of the men swinging their assault barges over the transport side. At five the barges were circling around in the water off their landing mothership, and the terrific barrages started from the battle wagons that had preceded us into the Bay of the Seine. It was like a review, the way we took those barges into the beach. You couldn't see the heads of the troops over their sides, just the coxswain's helmet sticking up from the stern. I looked aloft, saw our cutter's flag twisted around the mast, and in a spurt of patriotism, climbed aloft to free the banner. Just as I came down from the mast, we saw our first bunch of men. It was light then, 
and the scene was quickly changing from one of an even line of boats knifing in orderly rows behind their leaders towards the beach to a scene of carnage. One Higgins boat was completely disintegrated by a direct hit from shore. There were no survivors, and I couldn't even see the dismembered parts of the troops ashore come down after they'd been blasted sky-high. As infantry disembarked from the landing craft, they found themselves almost everywhere on sandbars fifty to one hundred yards out. Before they could even reach the beach, they would have to wade through water sometimes neck deep, and they still had two hundred yards or more to go when they did reach shore. Those that made it to the shingle did so at a walk because they were so heavily laden. Most sections had to brave the full weight of fire from small arms, mortars, artillery, and heavy interlocking fields of machine-gun fire. Dale L. Schropp was in a demolition squad of the 1st U.S. Engineer Combat Battalion. He recalls, I was with the first wave at zero hour, and one of the lone survivors of that day. I could not swim when we jumped off the LCI. I was tied to my platoon sergeant with a nylon rope. Imagine being in this type of mission when I couldn't swim. I also had on a life preserver. It was not so humorous then, because I was too scared to even know my name. A lot of the guys were hit below the waist and lost the use of their arms or legs, and the tide came in and got them before the medics could get to them. Another tragic thing I saw, when I came back to the beachhead after it was secured, they had bodies stacked in rows, like one would stack cordwood. With the initial assault missions unaccomplished, the second and larger wave of assault landings, designed to bring in reinforcements, support weapons and headquarters elements, started coming ashore at seven o'clock into similar conditions experienced by the first wave who were then not able to give much covering fire. The fact that beach obstacles had not been cleared meant that landing craft were being lost and have additional difficulty when they did get through in bringing their troops to shore. One key feature of the landings was to influence the next phase of the battle. The draws, as natural conduits of the beaches, were the main targets in the initial assault plan. The strong defences concentrated around these, however, meant that the troops landing near them quickly ended up in no shape to be able to carry out the assaults against them. It was only in the intervals between the draws at the bluffs, where the units were able to land in greater strength and defences were weaker, that the advances could be made. In places, small groups of men, sometimes scratched together from different companies, in some cases from different divisions, were inspired, encouraged, or even bullied from the relative safety of the shingle, to start the task of reducing the defences at the top of the bluffs. In small groups, wire defences were reduced, short rushes forwards were made, until the top of the bluffs were finally reached. As these groups made the top, they formed a tiny beachhead through which further troops could pass, and then spread out to assault the German defensive positions to either side, and thereby reduce the fire down onto the beaches. And there ends the look at the history of the Omaha beach landings. I want to give special thanks to the D-Day Museum. Please check them out on the web at www.ddaymuseum.co.uk. Those people gave me permission to use material from their website for this historical overview. Now it's time for Jack to do his thing. My name is Jack Jaritza. What you are about to hear is not a historical reenactment, but a reenactment of a scenario from the Memoir 44 board game. This scenario, we look at Omaha Beach. This time a unit was picked and it was the Rangers unit on the right side 
of the board from the Allied side attempting to land on Omaha Beach. We had been circling the ocean for hours. At first it was kind of fun. It was almost like a rodeo. Circling with boats upon boats, we could point and joke with the fellow boat guys as they passed by. But now, after hours of what seemed just circling and circling, people were sick. We were ready just to get on with our mission. The joy was gone. Suddenly, everyone started pointing towards the shore as all the boats almost at once seemed to snap towards the shore. We were finally on our way. I was a ranger. My job was to help take what was called Omaha Beach. Beside us were more boats with more troops and we had tanks in front of us. I had visions of striding across a clear beach and meeting the Germans face to face. This wasn't going to be. As we got closer and closer, all I could see was barbed wire, tank obstacles, and bunkers, and sandbags. The Germans had well fortified the beach, set up alleys of fire, and were going to cut us to shreds. My stomach got tighter and tighter as we got closer and closer to that beach. The tanks in front of us were struggling and finally hit the shore. They were at least a hundred yards in front of us. And we kind of cheered as they roared onto the shore. I kind of felt a little safe because I was already kind of picking out my path to walk behind that tank. Suddenly that tank blew up. My stomach clenched even harder. The boats in front of us were moving towards the beach. And the rest of the tanks started to roar towards the shingle that I could make out from my boat. But again, another tank went up in flames. Again, my stomach clenched. Infantry were scrambling to move to the tank obstacles. The tank obstacles were obviously there to stop the tanks from coming ashore, but now the soldiers were hiding behind them to find any protection they could. All I could see were tracers crossing each other, machine guns sweeping the beach, large guns just shelling the beach. I, I was in awe of just the, the spectacular fireworks in front of me. The boat directly in front of us dropped its front ramp and the soldiers ran ashore. A big explosion occurred and they half staggered forward. More tanks to our left started landing and one of them raised its gun and placed a well shot on the bunker. We all cheered as it exploded. But as soon as we smiled, with the success of the tank shot, we watched in horror as another tank beside me erupted into flames. I could see boats landing and troops swarming the beach. Guns raked the beach and blasts from large shells geysered the sand and the water. When the smoke cleared, half the troops that I saw leave the boat. Now only continued to stagger forward. It wasn't in the full-out run that they were when they left their boats. Suddenly, an Allied aircraft appeared overhead. We almost wheeled the plane. They attacked the bunkers, the guns, the mortars, everything that was on the in front of us. Our prayers were almost answered 
as the plane almost followed the points of every man's hand in the boat and strifed the top of the hill. The Germans scattered and we cheered. Our boat seemed to stagger forward, never really making any ground towards the beach. We yelled and screamed at the driver, but all he could do was scream back that he was fighting the tide. I watched in horror as yet another tank that was scurrying across the beach exploded in the fireball. I couldn't see any more tanks, and the tank that I had picked out to follow was now ablaze. Our boat finally lurched towards the beach and we made a final push to land. The tanks we were to follow were burning. We would have to find our own path. The ramp dropped, the sergeant yelled, and we stormed the beach. We ran as fast as we could, almost sidestepping the carnage, the pieces of tank, the shell holes, and just all the while being buzzed by the rounds passing by our heads and just scared as the tracers went by your face. We saw the seawall in front of us and we all scattered towards the seawall. That seemed to be the only place of cover that we could find. We occupied the left side of the seawall and on the right side of our seawall more troops moved up beside us. We all nodded in acknowledgement of each other knowing what we had to do next. Suddenly, machine guns raked and an explosion just loomed. When I looked back over to my right, all the guys that were in the shingle with us were no more. We were pinned down. Anytime we tried to move, we were harassed by machine gun fire. Large shells arced overhead. We were trapped. There was no place else for us to go. The tanks we were supposed to follow were all ablaze. We couldn't advance any further, and my heart sank knowing that it was only a matter of time. Thanks, Jack. That was really fun. And now over to another contributor. Hello, this is Stephen E. from BoardGameGeek.com, also known as Panzer Runes on the Memoir 44 forums. I volunteered to help FNH1 do a strategy session on Omaha Beach using the Airpack scenario. The Omaha Beach scenario takes place on June 6, 1944. As you set up the board as the Allies, on the left-hand portion, you're going to have the 1st Infantry Division, which is going to be assaulting Fox Beach and the left portion of Easy Beach. On the right side of your board, you're going to have the 29th Infantry Division, which is going to be assaulting the right portion of Easy Beach, Dog Beach, and Charlie Beach. On Charlie Beach, the 29th Infantry Division is going to be augmented uh, by the 2nd Ranger Battalion Special Forces. The American strategy. The Americans start with a handicap. They get four cards to the Germans five, and then the Germans get to attack first. Hopefully the Germans aren't holding the barrage card from their first draw, and also hope that they don't get the pincer move card when you're running your troops up through E3 and D1. The Americans will get basically three chances to establish a breakthrough, one on either flank and then one in the center. 
I found that either flank is a good option to start your assault. It all depends on your starting cards. D3 in the center is tempting because it's a close metal objective, but really you're going to need to neutralize the bunker by D3 uh, to be successful. I found that targeting the bunkers every chance you get is uh, a good strategy, especially the flanking bunkers with the artillery. Uh, I found that also getting units uh, adjacent to the artillery bunkers and then calling in the P-38 to use its ground support, uh, which will negate the, the bunker's terrain modifiers. I personally found that starting with uh, the right bunker was good uh, because you have the armor on the right, you have the armor support, and then you also have the support of the ranger unit which can, which can move two spaces and still attack. Utilizing the destroyer is also effective. I found it was better to pound the left gun battery in the left center troop bunker, uh, especially when the rolls were good. Uh, you might also want to think about moving the destroyer to the right to help with the uh, assault on that rightmost gun bunker. The only other thing to, to advise here is uh, you know, to keep fighting and moving, but neutralizing one of the gun batteries is key to winning this scenario. Getting off the beach intact is going to be really tough, especially for the armor. If armor does get into the backfield, it has a tendency to get neutralized really quick. There's no place for it to hide and, fight and fighting effectively from the towns, uh, plus the Germans are protected in the towns and the, and the bunkers. The German strategy. The German strategy is fairly straightforward. You gotta fire the guns in the bunkers every round possible. The Allies just can't get enough of that artillery. Also, the Germans need to keep the units in the bunkers as long as possible. They're protected there. No sense moving them out in the open. I also found that when the Germans have about three to four medals, it's wise to advance the troops up uh, from St. Laurent Samer and Vierville Samer uh, to support your damaged units. Also, when the Germans have about a three to four medal advantage, uh, this usually indicates that the uh, uh, Americans should be fairly damaged. So drawing more fire on them should yield you some quicker medals. Uh, and hopefully a victory. Also, don't be afraid to move your troops onto the beach, especially after you have four medals gained. Uh, by this point, the Americans will be uh, fairly chewed up, especially if the Allies are down by two or three medals and heavily damaged by the gun batteries. Omaha Beach is a really tough scenario for the Americans. Uh, they start out uh, you know, down by one card, um, the Germans get to attack first, the Germans are in a better defensive position. Ultimately, it really comes down to your starting hand and how well you can play those cards, and uh, also how kind the dice are to you. I really suggest starting out uh, assaulting the, the rightmost gun bunker, bringing in the P-38, get your armor on the beach, uh, establish uh, uh, the beachhead, and you're probably going to want to drop the armor back to protect it so it stays out of range of, uh, uh, of any other assaults, only because it's fairly ineffective once you get it into the backfield. And that's uh, the best strategy points I can give you. Um, so hopefully this is uh, helpful to all of you. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Stephen. Some good advice in there. And now, of course, I've got to go and get myself the air pack. Robin Duff is back on the line again from the ships in the channel. Now, there's a signal from the flagship. 
beaching station. That's the signal for our sailors on board this craft to get ready for the landing. And, of course, for the soldiers down in the hold to get ready with their kit on. Draw up onto the deck and down the ramp as we go into shore. And now it's time to have a quick review and see what was happening on and around this day of recording, which is the 10th of April, in 1944. On the 9th, which was a Sunday, on the Russian front, Bukovina region had been completely occupied by the Russians. In occupied France, Girard appointed Inspector General of the French Army. On Monday the 10th, on the Russian front, Odessa is captured by the Russian 3rd UF and Partisans. Meanwhile, in the Atlantic, U-515 and U-68 are sunk by the U.S. forces. On to the 11th. On the Russian front, the Russians advance on Simirfopol. In the air war over Europe, six RAF mosquitoes destroy Central Population Registry Building in The Hague. Well, that'll do for the big book of wartime events. And that's about it for today. The next show will be based on the next scenario in the base game, Mon Moucher. If you want to get in touch with me, you can send an email to memoir44podcast at gmail.com. I'm also occasionally available on Skype, where I'm known as FNH Podcast. This podcast also has a guild, a forum, at Board Game Geek. If you go there and look for the Memoir 44 Guild, you'll find us. I'll be finishing today's show with another section of D-Day Radio. It's about 13, 14 minutes long. And that's a bit longer than I normally like to play at the end of the show. But I just couldn't bring myself to cut it any shorter. That's all for today. F&H signing off. We have yet to see a German plane over the amphibious convoy. Which doesn't necessarily mean that we shan't see them before the attack is over. Our air support has been fine. And the loudspeakers call out almost constantly Spitfires on the fort or Mustangs overhead or B-17s passing on the starboard side. And as far as I know, no report has come in of attack by Nazi sea craft onto the convoys. Now it's almost black dark, and you see the ships uh, lying in all directions just like black shadows on the gray sky, some signaling out to sea, sheltered on the inside from the Germans' eyes, signaling with red lights and blinking code. There are four fires on the shore, looking like pinpoints, winking, much by smoke. Now planes are going overhead. That baby was plenty low. I think I just made the statement that no German planes have been seen, and I think that was the first one we've seen so far. He came very low, just cleared our stack, and as he passed, he let go a stream of tracer that did no harm. And then just as that happened, there was a burst of fire on the coast just off of us five miles. I think he probably heard me. German planes have been in the sky now, the darkness is honest, and the tracers have been flying up. They seem to have withdrawn from them for the moment, but the plane that we just had come over our ship was the first Nazi we've seen so far. He took a pass at us and went on, and nothing particular happened. <laughs>
township has just gave its warning whistles, and now the flak is coming up in the sky in streamers from the warships behind it. The sparks seem to just float up in the sky, and we're too far away to hear their explosion. Heavy firing now just behind us, and anti-aircraft bursts in the sky, and bombs bursting on the shore and along in the convoys of the German planes that are beginning their first attack on the night of June 6th. Now the darkness has come on us. These planes are here overhead now. Now the motors of the Nazis coming and going in the cloudy sky. The reverberation of bombs. Every once in a while you see a burst of fire from a bigger caliber on one of the warships firing up. This is a bomb hit. Another one. And the tracer lines keep arcing up into the darkness. Very heavy fire now off our stern. Some warships in that area. Fiery burst. And the flak and steamer is going out. In a diagonal slant. Nothing but the black burst of the ACAC in the dark sky. Here comes the planes. More anti aircraft fire inboard toward the shore. And the Germans must be attacking low with those planes off our stern because the stream of fire, the chasers, is almost parallel with the water. Our chaser lines are coming up. Almost all around it. Off the stern and off the side toward the French coast. Flares are coming down now. You can hear the machine gunning. The whole sea side is covered with tracer fire. Going up, leading the bombs, the machine gunning, and the planes come over closer. Fiery. the French coast a couple of miles. I don't know whether it's on the shore or is the ship on fire. Here's very heavy attack now, right?
That's the first time we shot our guns. Just take a deep breath for a moment and stop speaking. Now the air attacks have seemed to have died down, except for the British convoy, off a couple of miles beyond us. And for that one fire burning near the shore, the French shore, which is beginning to die down somewhat. Can't report that there were any hits, because they seem to have been on any of the ships around us at all. See nothing in the night, no fires or anything of that kind. Here we go again, another plane, come over. Right over our port side. Raising the leg in an arc right over our bow now.
got one. Right here. Yeah. This one? Great lots of fire came down in the smoldering now. Just off our port side in the sea. Smoke and flame there. You said it. We've had a few minutes pause. The lights of that burning Nazi plane are just twinkling now in the sea and going out. And the tracer starts up again and there's warning of another plane coming in. It's now 10 past 12 and the German air attack seems to have died out. To recapitulate, the first plane that was over that we described at the beginning of the broadcast was a low-flying German cavalry JU-88 that was leading the flight and came on the convoy in surprise, we believe, because he drew up and only fired as he passed by. And perhaps he was as surprised as we were uh, to see each other. And uh, there seems to have been no damage to the amphibious force that we can discover. Uh, one bomb fell astern of this warship. 150 yards away, uh, a string of rockets were fired at a cruiser beside us on the port side. No damage was done. And uh, gun number 42 at our port, just beside the microphone, shot down the plane that fell into the sea off uh, to the port side. It prevents the wooden shiner of Houston, Texas, who is the general control officer. And uh, Seaman Thomas Spira of Baltimore, Maryland, uh, handled the, the direction finder. It was their first uh, kill for this gun, and the boys were all pretty excited about it. A twin-barreled 40-millimeter anti-aircraft piece. They're already thinking now of painting a big star on their turret. They'll be at that first thing tomorrow morning when it's daylight. Meantime, now the French coast is quieted down. Seems to be no more shelling into it, and all around us is darkness and no light or no firing. Now, 10 past 12, the beginning of June 7, 1944. This is George Hicks speaking, and now return you to the United States. <laughs>